probably know as the head of CARE, one of the largest international relief organizations on the planet. We kick off with a conversation about the situation in South Sudan, and things have gotten precipitously worse there for the last several weeks. It's really one of the most urgent humanitarian crises on the planet right now. We then have a longer conversation about Dr. Gale's career as a public health official. And this is really interesting. She was on the front lines of the fight against HIV AIDS from the early 1980s. She was there pretty much at the beginning as a health officer at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Uh, So we have this really fascinating conversation about how AIDS developed over time, or I should say how the international and national responses to AIDS have changed since the early 1980s to today. So this is a great conversation. I think you'll learn a lot. I know I did. Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes, or you can find every episode on UN Dispatch. And hit me up with your questions, comments, suggestions, if you have uh, ideas of people you think I should interview or topics you think I should cover. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email via markleongoldberg.com. Here it is, my conversation with Dr. Helene Gale. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. This past spring, uh, many UN officials I was speaking with were warning of a looming famine in South Sudan, basically because planting season had been disrupted by fighting. Uh, A few months later, how close are we to an all-out famine right now in South Sudan? Right now, uh, we're really concerned about malnutrition rates. They're very clearly very alarming. Uh, people are arriving in, in protection areas, um, having hidden in deep bush for days and sometimes weeks without water and food. And so it's as much uh, related to the, the fighting as it is the planting season. Um, and I think the two have kind of conspired to really have us very concerned about uh, rising malnutrition rates, and particularly among children under five. Um, we've seen already that severe uh, acute malnutrition rates uh, among children under five have doubled since uh, Jan- last January, uh, since this January, uh, January 2014. And, um, you know, it's estimated that uh, over 200,000 children under five will be malnourished, and that could lead to as many as uh, uh, 50,000 deaths if um, treatment, uh, i.e. rehabilitative feeding and um, adequate nutrition aren't made available and scaled up. So, yeah, I think this is really uh, a real concern as um, both the – kind of concerns about the growing season, but also that combined with the reality that with conflict going on, people are um, hiding, people are not getting access to water and adequate nutrition, and um, this could be um, one more facet of what is already a pretty devastating story. Uh, and it's, I think it's probably worth pointing out that famine just just doesn't mean you know, being hungry or, or lack or food insecurity. It's uh, a designation pegged to specific indicators like malnutrition and child mortality, which you just referenced. Right. Uh, and we seem to be, you know, it seems that we're on the precipice, but maybe not not quite there yet. 
Um, can you, I guess, describe what what care? And as, as you know, obviously, with with um, lack of access to food, hunger is widespread, malnutrition, and that also leads to disease. And we see disease is also on the rise. Um, cholera, for instance, um, there have already been uh, up to. Uh, about almost 40 cholera deaths reported. So, you know, I think this whole nexus of food, malnutrition, and disease is one that we're really, really concerned about. So South Sudan seemed to have, I mean, it was always a very um, fragile state, if not the most fragile state in the world. But when the crisis erupted about six months ago in late December of of 2013, it caught a lot of, uh, you know, officials by surprise. Uh, that that things just spiraled out of control so quickly. What was your initial reaction, or what, how did CARE initially respond to the crisis in South Sudan back in uh, December, and how have your operations changed since then? Well, we responded um, by uh, as as quickly as possible um, because we are on the ground there, providing food, water, uh, and health care to people who were displaced. Um, and you know, have continued to scale up our operations to be able to respond to the needs. You know, I think in some ways it caught us, like everyone else, somewhat off guard uh, in that, you know, I think we, we've all been so hopeful that this experiment, if you will, of the two sedans was going to work. On the other hand, knowing the tensions and knowing how the tensions were, were uh, continuing to escalate, um, no one really should have been surprised that um, this uh, crisis and civil war erupted. Uh, unfortunately, it does seem like the situation is is getting worse. Um, we're responding there, but um, we're also focusing our work um, where uh, people are the most vulnerable uh, in protection areas of the UN base and. Um, uh, Bentio, for example, we're running an emergency health clinic. Uh, we're providing vaccines and primary health care as well as nutrition centers for malnourished children and pregnant and lactating women. We're also working to improve sanitation and hygiene standards and you know, looking at things like building emergency latrines and promoting safe hygiene practices. Um, we've had to... Uh, increase our teams um, so that we have enough staff on the ground. So our team has almost doubled to 400 staff um, since last year. And we're committed to trying to do all that we can to keep pace with the crisis. But ultimately, um, we know that this is something that is going to need to have a political solution uh, bring about peace, and you know we're there to make sure that the humanitarian needs of people who are displaced, uh, who are in the midst of this conflict, uh, who are vulnerable, uh, that their needs are taken care of. So how hard has it been to fundraise for this issue? You know, I was looking at the uh, UN Humanitarian Appeal, which is funded to only a very paltry Level like I think the UN relief agencies, care included, uh, you know, require something like 1.8 billion dollars, I believe, and have only raised like 750 million of that. Uh, so there's this huge unmet need. Uh, how hard has has fundraising around this been, particularly given you know competing crises in the Central African Republic and Syria? Well, I think you know the challenge is um, in these kinds of crises that are. Um, related to human conflict, it's much more difficult to raise resources. And as you mentioned, this is a particularly difficult time because we are so stretched um, with so many things going on. But, you know, if we look at the typhoon Haiyan in, in Philippines, for instance, we were able to raise actually more than we had uh, set out to, to raise in a very short period of time. I think that when people see natural disasters happen, um, they're cataclysmic, they happen all at once, um, there's an outpouring of sympathy, and with that comes an outpouring of resources. I think there, people have a very different feeling about um, human 
created crises and and crises that have a, if you will, a political nature. Um, there is less uh, of a sense of sympathy and empathy oftentimes. And in today's world, where we have so many um, crises going on, whether it's uh, CAR, um, Syria, Sudan, um, there's much more competition. Uh, but in e any one of those, we've had a hard time getting the kinds of resources and the kind of attention um, that we need for, um, uh, you know, for what is still what is a very, very human tragedy. Uh, and how has that um, sort of lack of resources affected your work? I mean, how how is the fact that CARE or these other or other other relief relief agencies haven't been ad adequately able to fundraise? Like, how is that manifesting itself on the ground in, in a place like uh, South Sudan? Well, we can't get out as fast. We can't do as much. Um, but we are, you know, we are able to rely on some institutional funding. Um, we do. We are raising funds from individuals as well, but we can't do as much. That, that's the the simple answer: is that we're not as able to be as effective and reach as many people as we would like to. Uh, so, uh, if we can switch gears now, if that's okay. Unless, do you have mm -hmm. any parting thoughts on South Sudan? Um, I guess the only thing I would would also call attention to is that you know in. Uh, uh, situations of conflict and violence, that gender-based violence uh, is a huge part of it that oftentimes doesn't get reported on, and that um, one of our big concerns is making sure that women are safe in the context of um, this crisis as well as uh, all the other um, crises that are going on. Uh, we re released uh, a report last month um, that uh, talked about some of the harsh environments uh, for women and um, how violence in the midst of conflict, um, gender-based violence in the midst of conflict is one of the real concerns that we have here in South Sudan as we do in Syria and other uh, conflicts that uh, we're involved in. Uh, and well, we see the wave of uh, sexual violence is actually worsening as the country continues to spiral um, uh, downward. So it's just a, a note that uh, we can't forget that women in these conflicts are incredibly vulnerable, and we have to remember the needs of um, women and, and girls in, in these conflict situations. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that that, that one of your programs uh, that you run in in South Sudan are uh, you know, geared towards pregnant mothers. Is that right? Right, right. Um, so uh, just switching gears a, a little bit, um, you, you were speaking re earlier about some of the medical needs of people in conflict, and I know that you are a medical doctor. Uh, I, I was reading your bio. I, I saw that you uh, grew up in Buffalo, New York. Was your you know family? Did you come from a, a family of physicians as well? No, not at all. No? Uh, uh, no. Where, no. where uh, My, what was your, your sort of family business, if, if you can call it uh, that? Um, yeah. My father was a small business owner. He owned a, um, a barber and beauty supply store. Uh, my mother was a social worker. Uh, and and, um, uh, mm -hmm. and so where did your... Um, I guess what came first, your passion for medicine or your, uh, you know, sort of worldly nature? Like, how would you define where you, you know, where, where you got your start? Yeah, well, you know, I think my um, family felt very much that, um, you know, we had a real obligation and a commitment to give back to the community. Um uh, and that, that expression, to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, we weren't a wealthy family by any means, but, you know, had the opportunity for good education. Um, my parents were very civic-minded. And um, so for me, I always knew that I wanted to have a career that would allow me to make a difference in society and in some ways give back and contribute to positive social change. I thought about a lot of different ways of doing that. Um, uh, originally, 
probably thought about being a lawyer, but I had two two older sisters who went to law school, so I figured that they had that uh, they had that cornered. So I wanted to do something different. I also felt that you know health and medicine is something very tangible. It, it's something that um, really defines so much of one's potential. Um, if one is not healthy, um, you know, there's not a lot else you can do, and if, if communities aren't healthy, um, they don't get their fair start. So I felt like medicine and health was one way of having a very tangible tool to give back to society. Um, when did you I, have that realization? Were you, were you pretty young, or were you in college by then? I was in college. I mean, I was uh, middle way through college. Um, I, you know, I, again, I thought about several different ways that I could have made a contribution and ultimately, you know, variety of different circumstances and people who come into your life and influences and things that you think about um, made me decide that medicine would be a, a, a tangible way of uh, making a contribution. And so did you go straight uh, from college to med school? I, um, I did. I, I actually did a post-bac pre-med program because I didn't decide to go to medical school until about my junior year in college, and so I still had a couple of uh, um, courses to take. So that I, conveniently, there was a, a, pre, uh, a post-baccalaureate program that was was especially geared to giving you uh, the requirements you needed. So essentially, I went through, straight through. And so, I guess, did, now, did you? Uh, how did you end up at the the CDC? I know you spent a, a large part of your career working at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, was that a straight shot from med school? No. So I went to you know I went to medical school and and um, you know again these things kind of you know you hear somebody speak uh, you, you know you kind of get some notions in your head. Who did you, you know, hear because speak? Because I went. Well, a variety of different people, Um, but, um, you know, one of them was D.A. Henderson, who was the person who led the um, eradication of smallpox campaign. Um, And, you know, over the course of my medical school years, I heard a variety of different people who made me think about the notion of, you know, looking at medicine at a community level, um, as opposed to an individual level. So if you're a clinician, your patient is the individual. If you're uh, a public health practitioner, your patient is a community or a nation or sometimes even the world. And so since I went into medicine more because of my desire to contribute to positive social change, the whole notion of public health where you could have impact on large populations really um, resonated with me. So I finished up my coursework um, a year early in medicine so that I could do a fourth year uh, as a master's in public health. And I did a master's in public health at at Hopkins in international public health uh, because I also knew that I was very interested in kind of global issues more broadly. So just for, for reference, about what, what year is this? Because, I mean, the global health landscape has changed so dramatically in, in a relatively 80. short period of time. In, in the mid-80s? 80. In, in 1980. 80. Okay. So, yeah, I, I did my master's in public health, 80, so what, 80, 81. So going back to 1980, I mean, polio, was, it was obviously a huge thing back then because the Global Polio Eradication Initiative didn't start until like a decade later in earnest. What were some of the, the you know, big global health issues in 1980 that, that you were studying and working on? Yeah, I think the big focus at that time was around child survival, Um, and there were big child survival programs looking at getting children vaccinated. At that time, the whole um, area of um, 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 oral rehydration to keep children from dying from from diarrheal diseases um, was a big Part and so there was a big focus on um, child survival as a as a whole notion. How do we make sure that children in developing countries don't die needlessly 
um, by the age of five and what are the things that are necessary in terms of nutrition, vaccination, um, diarrhea, pneumonias, and those sorts of things. So those were those were really big issues. And then the, probably the other one, um, um, access to uh, family planning so that women could space their um, births and be, keep themselves health, healthy and have healthier children. It's funny, those um, issues aren't terribly dissimilar to the priorities of the global health community today, but I imagine one of the key differences is probably the technologies used to achieve those ends. I guess back in 1980, I mean, what, you know, what, was, what were they doing uh, to, to achieve those ends? Uh, and I, well, I think the technologies have changed some. I think what's changed mostly is our ability to deliver. Um, I think um, the, the commitments uh, by governments and donors um, to really get and keep things like vaccination levels up to a certain point. I mean, I think what we've gotten much better at is how do we take the technologies that are available and make sure that they are effectively utilized and that there's the commitment to doing it. Uh, you know, this change takes time. But on the other hand, you know, we've seen death rates in children under five plummet around the world as a result of these things. So, you know, in some ways, yes, these are some of the same priorities. And of course, there are other things that have come in since then, like HIV and other things. But, um, you know, these are not things that happen overnight. They're things that take consistent um, commitment, dollars, resources, and programs to be able to make sure they happen. I mean, things like being able to have a cold chain so that vaccines um, in tropical environments actually stay potent. You know, a lot of work went in, in, into that. Um, we now have very stable cold chains so that we know that, you know, when vaccines are shipped out, even to the most uh, rural areas, they're going to be effective when they get to the end to the end user. So, you know, a lot in some ways, a lot has changed. A lot has stayed the same, but a lot has actually changed. And you know, I think um, the whole what's happened in child survival over the last uh, 20, 30 years, I think, is you know one of the real um, global health success stories. And and you're saying that a lot of that changes is due to. Uh, governments, uh, presumably donor governments, but maybe also recipient gover governments, in making this more of a priority than it used to be. I guess I no, I'm saying it, host governments. I, I, I think mm -hmm. it takes two. I mean, I think yes, um, external governments, donor governments, but I think also um, host governments have made some of these things higher, higher priorities as well. Uh, so sorry, we and digress. I think the level. Level of skill within countries has, has improved. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of things. So we digress from, from your story. You're studying international uh, uh, health in 1980 at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and what did, wh where did, what, where did you go from there? And then I went and did my residency in pediatrics uh, because I did want to have, um, you know, um, a clinical specialty, pediatrics. I chose partly because kids are fun and I enjoyed it, but also uh, pediatrics is much more of a preventive um, health uh, field. Um, you know, a lot of what you do for children is to give them the right start, to help them get on the right road. Um, and because, uh, again, back to this issue of child survival, because I knew I wanted to also have a global uh, aspect to my career, child survival, and what happens to children under five was a huge, you know, a huge part of, of the global health agenda. And so for me, pediatrics also gave me the opportunity to um, engage uh, in global health. And, and so uh, when was it that you ended up at the Center for Disease Control? So after I finished my pediatric residency, I, you know, I, I decided, you know, I had, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to continue on the path of clinical medicine. I, you know, I knew that I had gotten kind of this uh, conceptual interest in public health. I had taken the time and done the master's in public health, 
but I felt it would be good to get some actual practical experience in public health. CDC has a two-year training program, the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is an opportunity for uh, people like myself, um, you know, people, physicians early in their career who might want to get some background in public health. It gives a two-year training program to work uh, in one of the departments at CDC and get more experience. And so I kind of hedging my bets, if you will, um, went to CDC assuming that I would go for two years and then uh, either go back to clinical practice or maybe go work for an international NGO or something of that sort, uh, but got to CDC, really loved it, and stayed for 20 years. And so what, where was your first assignment in CDC? What, what department were you in? Uh, nutrition. Nutrition. So uh, I was working on issues of childhood malnutrition, both uh, in this country and internationally. Uh, and I know uh, you spent a, a lot of your time there dealing with HIV/AIDS. Uh, it must have been right at the, the very early part of the of the AIDS epidemic, I would imagine. What? Right. So when I when I was first coming to CDC, and there's kind of almost a lottery when you come in. Um, those of us who are new assignees, you come in, you interview with a, with a lot of different uh, with all the different departments within CDC, and then you make some choices, and they make some choices, and they put it in the computer and spits out where your assignment is. And you know, I considered HIV when I first came in. Uh, but a lot of people actually said, oh, you know, stay away from it. You know, it's just this kind of oddball disease and it's not going to, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find a cure in a year or so and it's not really going to amount to anything. So why don't you do something that really has a real public health impact? Um, and so um, because I did have this strong interest in, in childhood um, nutrition, malnutrition, and it was a really, really strong department. Uh, I, I decided to um, uh, have to, to list them as my first choice. Ultimately, um, I decided to stay at CDC, and uh, ultimately decided that, in fact, HIV wasn't some oddball disease that was going to go away, that it was, in fact, probably going to be the defining public health issue of our time. And so, um, you know, spent most of the rest of my time at CDC uh, focusing on HIV, both domestically as well as internationally. So what, about around what year were you first sort of fully seized on, on HIV? Um, I started working full-time in HIV, I think, in 1986. So, I mean, this is very, very early in, in the HIV, uh, you know, crisis. I guess what did HIV look like in, in 1986, I mean, in terms of, you know, the scale of people affected? I mean, this was mostly like a gay men's disease back then, correct? Uh, you know, at that time, it primarily was focused on um, primarily hit gay men, injection drug users in the adult population, but I entered into it from the pediatric realm because that was my background, and so I was working on um, some of the very first uh, pediatric and adolescent HIV cases, um, the, er the first waves of um, HIV in adolescent and, and children. Uh, population where the rates weren't as high yet as they were in in the adult population. Hmm. I, you know, I'm, I think Ryan White was probably just a few years older than me. Um, what mm -hmm. I guess, how did his story? I mean, his story sort of transfixed, transfixed the, the nation for for a long time. Uh, did that? Sort of, how did that change your work? Well, I think the whole notion of um, stigma and discrimination was very much part of, you know, I think what Ryan White helped to get, uh, to, to help people to deal with. Um, you know, unfortunately, because HIV was first um, prevalent in um, gay men and injection drug users, uh, populations that were already in many ways stigmatized in our society, and I think there was a fair amount of blaming um, 
you know, you did this to yourself, you, you know, you're bad people, um, you deserve this disease, you know, a lot of talk like that back in those days. You know, Ryan White was a, you know, quote, innocent child who um, did nothing but um, as a result of, uh, 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 you know, blood products. Yeah. yeah, blood products, um, you know, developed the disease because we didn't have the kind of screening that we do now. And so I think to see HIV in somebody that um, people saw as blameless uh, in a child, I think, helped to start shifting people's ideas and, and thoughts. And if you remember, um, he went through quite a lot in the early days. People didn't want him in, in their school, and, you know, there was so much fear that went along with it. But I think also along with it went a certain um, different level of tolerance and, a, and a, a broadening in our thinking about, you know, a virus and and can you uh, – is the virus uh, – do you do you blame some people and not others, or you know how do we think about this in in ways that are much more human and humanizing? So I think Ryan White did a lot to help to humanize, destigmatize, and open up people's eyes um, to this to this uh, to this virus in different ways. So was your role at the CDC at the time more dealing with the, uh, I suppose, public health impact of HIV-AIDS, or were you doing, like, clinical scientific research on the actual virus, or perhaps both? Um, I wasn't – I'm not a laboratory person, so, no, I wasn't doing laboratory research. I was doing epidemiologic research, really looking at the distribution of the disease in in populations, what were the risk factors, uh, what uh, – kind of looking at what were the correlates, um, how fast did the disease, um, what was the course of the disease, how fast did it, did it develop in different populations, what were some of the factors that might influence disease and disease progression. So it's the realm of kind of epidemiology and um, looking at disease, but not in a laboratory sense. So uh, you were there sort of, uh, you know, at the time when uh, HIV/AIDS went from a, you know, a backwater uh, domestic issue to an important and critical uh, domestic public health issue, but then to, uh, uh, but sort of ignored internationally, uh, to one where it's sort of one of the key international, you know, global health priorities. Uh, how, I guess, did that shift take place, or when, when would you say that shift took place from when, at least from an American perspective, HIV-AIDS shifted from something uh, that was a domestic priority to something that was an international uh, priority of American foreign policy? Yeah. Well, first, um, let me just fill out the story a little yeah. bit domestically. And Please. so, you know, it, it went from being seen as a disease of of gay men and injection drug users to um, a disease that was disproportionately affecting communities of color. Now, those groups inter intersect. Obviously, there are gay men of color, there are injection drug users. Um, but I think for because it started as a disease that people thought of as a white gay male disease, for a long time, it wasn't clear how disproportionately it was impacting uh, minority communities. And I think that was when that was one of the early alarm bells that we tried to sound was, you know, even in the back in the very early days, um, you know, 25 percent of AIDS cases were among African-American and Hispanics. Uh, among African Americans that make up uh, 25, I might get the numbers slightly wrong, but it, you know, 25 percent of cases among African Americans, African Americans making up about 13 percent of the U.S. population. So already this disproportionate impact, you know, and now we we have numbers, um, you know, much higher showing this very disproportionate impact of HIV on African American and and 
and Hispanic uh, populations, and increasingly more and more spread to women, um, women whose partners were either um, having sex with men and women or whose partners were injecting drug users. So we have a lot more heterosexual, um, increasingly a lot more heterosexual spread. So the epidemic diversified, if you will, in the, in the United States and hit many of the same communities that were already disproportionately impacted by other health um, uh, issues. And again, for some of the same reasons, um, low socioeconomic status, um, lack of access to health and health services, but particularly in the case of um, young gay men, the extreme stigma attached to same-sex behavior um, uh, in, in the African-American community, I think, really led to uh, a real crisis um, uh, among, particularly among young gay men. A lot of data around that. And I, don't, I don't have it at my fingertips, um, but you know, I think uh, still uh, today a, a, a continued concern for me. Um, and then going to the international, yes, it did shift, and I think you know we were at the forefront. We at CDC, um, we had three research projects: one in Thailand, one in Ivory Coast, and one in um, in Zaire, now um, Congo, um, with the idea that as an American institution that needs to think about protecting the American population, it was important for us to look at different patterns of HIV that that we're seeing overseas that could become um, risk for our population. So in um, Thailand, the huge number of, of um, injection drug users who, and injection drug users as well as um, uh, women, women uh, female sex workers, quote, prostitutes. Um, so in Thailand, there was a huge heterosexual spread that we hadn't seen in the United States. The same in, um, in Congo Zaire, where there was a huge um, spread of heterosexual transmission, but also that meant that there were many, many, many more children affected by perinatal, you know, mother-to-child transmission, which we had not yet seen in the United States. And in Ivory Coast in West Africa, um, HIV-2, um, the second variant of HIV, was there in West Africa, and we didn't know if this was going to be a, an additional threat to the United States as well. So we began our work internationally as research that we thought would help us to understand potential patterns that, that could be what we might see in the United States so that we were prepared and understood how to um, uh, impact different uh, potential uh, patterns before they took hold in the United States. But as a result of the research, we also then got much more involved in looking at, all right, so what can we do? Uh, it's great to study, and, it's, and as a U.S. organization, our mandate to study things that could have an impact on the U.S. population, but as public health um, practitioners, we didn't feel satisfied that studying was enough, that if we were going to work in those countries, we also had to look at what are ways in which we could also help reduce the spread uh, of HIV, and that was way before there was much access to treatment. So we were really looking at what were the best ways that we could work with those countries to develop prevention. And from there, the very early roots of what is now PEPFAR began um, from the programs that we, that, that we had started in those countries and then spread to a few other countries where we were really looking at what were ways in which we could work with countries to help to stem the tide of HIV with the things that we had available, whether it was access to uh, drugs for sexually transmitted diseases, which reduced the risk of HIV, condoms, behavior change, abstinence, all the things that, you know, that we know can make a difference in the spread of HIV. That is such and a, that's a really, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. 
Yeah, so those were the early roots of... About what year would you say that this is? Because this is like an absolutely fascinating story. You're talking about sort of the roots of the U.S. response to the AIDS crisis. Actually started with research, as as you said, but then grew into something more. About when are we talking about... Yeah, I think the Zaire project started in 1984. Ivory Coast started in 1988, and I think Thailand... Somewhere around there, maybe late 80s, early 90s. And about when did that shift occur uh, from the idea of not just doing research, but, but you know, trying to put some efforts into prevention as well? Well, pretty much all along. I mean, I, you know, it, it, they, we did, we could justify the expenditure by it be by them being primarily research sites, but we always felt the obligation to also um, have a prevention side to it. So I'm not sure that there was a sudden shift as much as there was, you know, the broader, the, the, the purpose for being able to do it given the mandate of CDC was to do the research, but we always knew that we needed to do um, prevention as well. You know, the other uh, question that you had asked earlier, when did this, you know, when did, when did this uh, really get into the um, foreign policy domain more clearly? And I think, you know, there are a lot of different um, efforts that, um, you know, went towards that. Uh, uh, I can think of when Tim Worth was undersecretary of um, at the State Department um, being very, very concerned about this, and there were some uh, classified reports that looked at uh, rates of HIV in armies around the world and what that might do to destabilize um, peace and security efforts. But I think the real hallmark was when Richard Holbrook um, worked to get worked with uh, Al Gore to get uh, HIV on the um, uh, UN General Assembly um, uh, you know, the MDGs, I would imagine, or even before no. that? Yeah, before that. It was mm-hmm. 1991. I, well, um, let's see. When did, uh, no. The, well, we can, we can, early 90s, we'll say. Clinton, well, I'm, it's when Clinton came into office, Mm -hmm. but it was the first time that a health issue had ever been put on the agenda of the, of the UN general assembly. And it was then that it, it got out of the realm of health and really uh, became a security issue. And it was a very intentional thing that Richard Holbrook, who was at that time, our UN ambassador said, you know, I get that this is a health issue, but until people see this as something that has security, uh, peace and security implications, it's never going to have the kind of attention that it needs to. And so um, that's somewhat that's almost uh, somewhat dissatisfying, right, that that it takes that sort of, um, you know, uh, invocation of national security interests in order to draw attention and resources to combat a problem that, you know, ought to be, you know, is serious enough on its own merits, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, but, you know, um, as a realist, I think he recognized that if, you know, he got, he had had the opportunity to go see what HIV was doing to whole societies and communities, and honestly did believe that it had a real potential for being a national security threat, that it was a health issue, but it was a kind of health issue that was going to go beyond just health implications, and that if we didn't look at it that way, then, you know, if our response was a typical health response, um, then we weren't going to have the kind of response it needed to really make the kind of difference that it needed. And, you know, I spent a couple of years as the head of um, uh, the AIDS program for USAID. At that time, my budget was $250 million, and people were questioning whether or not that was money even worth spending. Hmm. Um, 
So from $250 million to the billions of dollars that we spend today, and again, I think a lot of that is because people started realizing that the implications of this were not just health, they were economic, they were social, they were peace and security, and that if we didn't mount the kind of response with the kind of resources that we don't usually see for a health issue, then you know we were going to risk losing whole societies, losing whole economies, and so I think it took ringing that kind of bell to actually um, you know make make that difference. So I, I know we're running short on time. I just want to maybe finish the uh, the, the HIV AIDS story because we're, we're coming up on the next uh, big AIDS international AIDS conference. This one is happening down mm-hmm. in uh, Australia. Oh. What I, I guess. Looking, you know, to the future, I guess, where do you see this, the story of the international response to the AIDS crisis going and heading next? Well, I think, you know, I think we've reached a point in time where we know what is feasible. We know that it is possible to get treatment to people. We've scaled up treatment. Um, you know, we still have a ways to go, but, you know, we, we've made treatment widely available uh, in countries where we thought um, you know, 10 years ago, we thought it wasn't even possible. Uh, so I think we need to continue, and we know that treatment also has a powerful preventive I- uh, impact as well, because if you reduce somebody's uh, load of their virus in their blood, they're, they're also less uh, transmissible. Uh, they, they don't trans- they're, they're less likely to transmit HIV to someone else. Um, you know, we're, we're developing new tools. Uh, so I think, you know, we'll continue to develop new tools and technology, particularly on the prevention side. And, you know, I, I think we do have some pretty bold goals around, for instance, reducing, to, reducing uh, basically eliminating pediatric HIV, mother-to-child um, um, mother transmission of HIV. It is doable. Uh, we, we've got the technology. We have the regiments. We know what it takes. And I think, you know, it's a real doable goal to be able to rid the world of pediatric HIV. I think we need to continue to push on our treatment goals. I think we need to continue to push on our prevention goals. So I think, you know, I think um, now we also need to look at how do we make sure that HIV is linked with other issues um, so that, you know, a mother who wants to space her children who is also HIV infected also uh, at the same time is able to get access to family high quality family planning so she can space birth she now knows that she can um, have children that will be HIV free but we don't want her to have so many children so close together that she jeopardizes her health and theirs. And so I think now thinking of how do we make sure that we're integrating things that um, can be integrated along with HIV, making sure that if a child is saved from um, HIV infection because we now know how to prevent it from transmitting from a mother to a child, that that child then also has adequate nutrition and doesn't die of uh, diarrheal disease or gets their immunization. So I think we need to make sure that as we as we look at HIV overall that we're taking advantage of how do we integrate and as we save lives that we're making sure that we're saving lives um, across the board and in meaningful ways. Um, so we had a very long digression about HIV AIDS uh, yeah. from the 1980s okay. to the future. But if, if you have two more minutes, do you want to just tell the story about how you came to CARE? Um. Well, you know, I was I was at the Gates Foundation. I had come to the Gates Foundation from CDC um, to help them start their global health program, and particularly with their, uh, a, a, a very big focus on on their work on HIV and, and other related diseases, tuberculosis, reproductive health, um, and um, was very 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 pleased to have been at the Gates Foundation at a very pivotal time, very early days when, when they were first starting. Um, I was asked to consider the, the care job, and um, initially, because I was uh, very, felt very um, 
uh, felt like I was, you know, con- making a real contribution where I was at CARE, didn't necessarily, and because my all my work was in health and, and CARE isn't a health organization, hadn't really uh, initially considered it. But as I was thinking about it and got a couple more calls about it, I, you know, I started realizing that my, you know, my whole life, if you will, has been looking at how do you attack the underlying causes that lead to the issues that, you know, we, we try to confront. And so if I take HIV as an example, while we know that, you know, HIV and AIDS is caused by a virus, ultimately the way that virus is distributed in populations has as much to do with other kind of inequities. It has to do with gender inequities. It has to do with poverty, uh, lack of education, et cetera. And that many of the health issues that I care deeply about, if I only looked at the health interventions, you're only able to do but so much. But if you can look at the underlying causes, uh, poverty, gender inequality, lack of access to clean and safe drinking water, lack of access to um, livelihoods, poor agricultural outputs so that people don't have adequate food and nutrition, et cetera, all the things that CARE works on, you know, I ultimately came to believe I could have an even greater impact on saving lives than only working in the health arena. And so for me, it's kind of part of a pattern of looking at, you know, how do you take what you have and use it in a way that can make the greatest good and can can um, look at the, not so much just the, the consequences, but what are also the causes. And I, you know, uh, believe, and so I went into public health and prevention, that if you can look at you know, kind of the, what's underneath the things that are really the drivers, the underlying causes, and if you can have an impact on that, that you have a much bigger impact than if you're just tackling, you know, kind of the, the tip of the ice, iceberg, if you will, the things that are more obvious, the symptoms versus the actual um, uh, underlying causes. So, you know, that's kind of what brought me to care, the, my passion for trying to look at ways that I could perhaps have an even greater impact and, um, you know, have been happy and haven't looked back twice. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. Thank you to Dr. Helene Gale for her time. Thanks to everyone at CARE for helping make this podcast interview happen. Subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and you'll find one of these longer interviews with a foreign policy luminary every Monday and every Thursday I post shorter interviews with a journalist or think tank type about something topical and in the news. So subscribe, uh, check us out on UN Dispatch and we'll see you soon. Bye.